0: Well, today we're going to talk about, uh, we finished our sermon series on Philippians, so we're going to do a couple different things this summer, and I want to talk about uh, something that I'm uh, just for the simplicity's sake using that familiar movie phrase, it's complicated, and I'm not speaking about the uh, the movie uh, with uh, Meryl Street and Alec Baldwin in 2009, and this is a phrase used to, to an attempt to try to Describe a relationship that doesn't seem to uh, fit real easily in a definition. But, so I'm stealing this. I'm using it as our, uh, our sort of slogan today. Uh, I could have used other ones. Uh, sometimes pastors get together. You shouldn't know this. But we say, you know, the ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. Um, so I didn't use that phrase for several reasons. Uh, that's why I'm not even going to tell you about it. Um that the other thing we could have said is relationships, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. Uh, so there's all different ways that we come at this, but what I'm really trying to uh, demonstrate today is why simple solutions to people's problems are almost always not solutions. People are complicated, and I don't th- think that's really news to many of you, but there's sort of a sub theme here. This is really what, why, like, why am I even get on this topic at all? Well, I'm going to use this topic to explain why Red Cedar Church is committed to biblical counseling. What biblical counseling is? That's what we're going to use this sermon to uh, help us understand. And maybe the best way for you to begin getting some application out of this message is I'd like you to think of someone in your life right now. And I'm going to give you a couple different categories, uh, but there's other categories that you can use as well. But maybe think of someone that is difficult for you to get along with. Maybe not. Maybe not, no one's coming to mind. Um, maybe someone who, if you're really honest, there's times you can't even stand that person. Uh, or maybe think of someone you ache to fix them. I mean, you 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 can see something that's broken in them, and you just Ache to fix them and feel frustrated at that process. Maybe it's someone you don't even know them, but they're kind of on the periphery of your life, and you've just noticed you're kind of avoiding them because they're just the, they're the kind of person that you're just afraid if you get close to them it's quicksand, or there's just something about them that. It's just hard for you to have a sense of respect for them or whatever it is. But you just have this tendency almost subconsciously to avoid them. So I'd like you to think of that person, whatever that category, and kind of as we talk through, see if in the process of looking at, at the Scripture this morning, the Lord doesn't use this moment to broaden your grasp of these individuals and even give you some compassion for them. So, I want to start with the the, uh, the passage um, in 2 Chronicles, the one that Ben just read for us, 2 Chronicles 26. It's the story of a king, a king named Uzziah. You don't need to know much about him. Uh, there's, We're just going to use them as a quick illustration. There there are so many of the kings in 2 Chronicles we could have used, but Uzziah becomes king. And in fact, it says it, at the age of sixteen, he uh, he began doing some amazing things. He began restoring some things because his father had drifted from the Lord. Um, he reigned for a long time. Second Chronicles twenty six verse three says he reigned for fifty or for fifty two years, and and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse four: Many kings did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he set himself to seek God. In other words, he didn't just passively seek to do the right thing. He intentionally, deliberately set himself to seek God. And then I want you to notice a phrase that you could read right by it. But it ought to be in bold. It ought to be in the largest possible font. In chapter 26, he set himself to seek God. In the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And when the days of Zechariah were over, guess what? Uzziah became proud, and Uzziah began his downfall. Uzziah starts out well, and he ends bad. You know, there's some people who start out bad and end well, can you think of them? Anybody like that? Samson is one of those, right? People are complicated. John chapter 9, uh, I'm going to ta- uh, go through a number of verses right now. Um, John chapter 9, these are verses are all in your uh, bulletin, by the way. In John chapter 9, there's a scene where uh, a man is born blind and the disciples are with Jesus and they ask him this question, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, for the disciples, suffering wasn't complicated at all. Suffering was because someone personally sinned. All of suffering could be lumped into that one little circle. Either someone sinned, the parents or this guy, to which Jesus said, Neither. Not exactly. Suffering isn't just because of someone's sin. Or a little bit later, several years later, when Peter and the other disciples have seen enough of Jesus and he finally asks this question Who do you people say that I am? And Peter says, Why, well, you are the Christ. And to which Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You didn't get this answer all by your own rational thinking. The Holy Spirit himself revealed this to you. Just a couple verses later, he has to say to the same Peter, get behind me, Satan. People are complicated. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 makes it very clear in my mind that human beings are not just victims. They're also victimizers. They are neither just uh, victims. They are neither just victimizers. They are both. Chapter uh, 8 of Romans, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, because sin came into the world, the creation itself, our world is broken. You should know this, right? Uh, I'll just tell you real quickly, I wasn't even planning to say this, but so Kathy and I have this funny story to just show you how our memories aren't that great. Uh, we had a time when we were camping with all of our six kids, and uh, we went to d- do s'mores or whatever it was, right? And the chocolate was missing. Well, <laughs> okay, we're going to find out who stole it. And I mean, we lined them up. We, we got no responses whatsoever. We told them, but they wouldn't even get punished. I mean, we tried every interrogative technique we could think of. We then got them away individually and grilled them. Uh, And short of threatening them with hell, we did not get an answer from them. All of them were just, no, no. And then it was a few moments later we discovered that uh, someone, who will go unmentioned, um, (laughs) had misplaced the chocolate somewhere else. Uh, So we have forgetful memories. The world is broken and things affect us in creation. And that's what he means by the whole creation has been uh, uh, subjected to futility. In verse 21, it will be set free one day. But then verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only is physical creation broken by sin, but we ourselves groan inwardly. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we still groan inwardly. This shouldn't be news to us, right? Our world is broken. We are the victim of a broken world. There's thorns and thistles in the world, and they affect us. And the sins of other people impact us. And our own sin contributes to that vicious, chaotic cycle. So we are both victims and victimizers. So it's complicated. But today what I want to do is give to you a brilliant. I've never found anything better than this. A brilliant and biblical understanding of the human condition that plays out in every single relationship that we have. This simple uh, diagram, I think, helps you understand you, and it also helps you understand others in your relationship with them as well. And I'm going to give credit to David Pallison, uh, who was one of the fathers of biblical counseling, who came up with this, In fact, it seems to me like he doesn't, uh, he may have put it in some book somewhere. I saw him give a lecture one time and demonstrate this. Uh, You can find this in the book, I Still Do, by Dave Harvey, who says, here's a simplified way to understand the complex influences that shape relationships. So here we go. Five circles that make us up. At the very center of us is our human heart. Our human heart. Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all diligence. Why? Because you see, your heart, from your heart flows everything. Everything flows from your heart. The very springs of life flow from it. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasure is, what? There your heart is also. In other words, your heart is is the factory of all your desires that run your life. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. James chapter 4, which we'll look at next week, it's kind of an application or sort of a demonstration of this message today. Uh, James chapter 4 says that every single conflict that you have is actually a heart problem, not a circumstantial one. Think about that for just a moment. So, the human heart, uh, the very center of us. uh, The next circle is uh, that human heart is physically embodied. You're not just a heart floating free or a soul, might be a synonym to heart there, but it's, it's encased in a body. And our bodies, our physical bodies, directly affect our souls. We have a vulnerable frame. Uh, In fact, it's so vulnerable that by the time you hit your kind of maybe say late 30s, somewhere in there, it actually starts decaying in some ways and then that process just accelerates. And this body, in fact that's why uh, 2 Corinthians is one of many books that points this out. Uh, Paul speaks about Uh, This great treasure of the gospel, it's in these fragile jars of clay. And then it says our outer self is wasting away. Even as our inner self is being renewed, even as we're becoming younger and younger as a child by the Spirit, our body is actually wasting away. And that's why even in chapter 12, Paul speaks about, I've got this thorn in my body, this thorn in my flesh, and it's affecting him on a spiritual level. So maybe something is going on with someone uh, that's physical. We don't think about this all the time. Maybe something's going on with someone that's in their physiology that's actually affecting the way they respond spiritually or mentally or emotionally in certain ways. In Psalm 103, it says, The Lord knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. So these bodies affect us. And that's one of the reasons why I say, when you look at someone else, keep this in mind, my body is not your body. We do this all the time, don't we? If something goes wrong with your body and someone else seems to have similar symptoms, guess what? You've got an answer for them. It's what worked for you, so therefore it will work for them. Uh, and and you, you might have a body that's prone to addiction, And you might think you might not get someone who, um, or or better yet, you may have one that's not prone to addiction, and you may not understand someone who whose body is prone to to addiction. What works for you in resisting addiction will not work for them. Some people have different pain tolerances. Uh, Some people are genetically more vulnerable in certain areas than other people. So all these are ways that our physical body uh, affects us. And then, of course, that physical body is socially embedded. If the body is the nature issue, then this circle is the nurture issue. Nature, nurture, the ongoing discussion that no one's ever really been able to, to solve. But another way of saying this that Dave Harvey says in his book, uh, I Still Do, he says it this way, we all have stories, stories of origin that impact how we respond to temptation. We all have stories that impact how we respond to temptation. Uh, so uh, Exodus chapter 20 you shall not bow down or serve other false gods for I the Lord your God I'm a jealous God what does he say I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation now this is not saying that I'm punished for my great grandfather's sins it is saying I'm affected by my great grandfather's sins or my father's sins, or my mother's sins. So it's not just your own environment. It's also your parents' parents' environment as well. This has proven itself over and over in sociological studies. Uh, So some people might grow up in an abusive home, and that shapes them. Some people might not grow up in an abusive home, but they might grow up in a passive home. Sometimes we don't think about this, but some people grow up in a home where they're just passively loved. They're just kind of there, you got a responsibility, you raise your kids and off they go. They're not proactively loved. Even that affects people uh, in, in their trajectory. Uh, and then, of course, some people grow up in homes that, where they received lots of discipline and as a result, they're disciplined. We wonder sometimes why other people don't have discipline. Sometimes it may have to do with the home they grew up in or even the home their parents grew up in. Uh, Some people grew up in homes where they're used to seeing their parents repent. But many grew up in homes where they never even once heard their parents say uh, that to own their sin in the full, robust way, and so forth and so forth. Kathy and I, shortly after we got married, realized we grew up in very different homes when it came to conflict. Uh, She had zero conflict in her home. They never raised their voice, they never sort of were strongly opinionated and kind of pushed back against each other. And then one day she visited my family and realized there's a different world out there. Um, And my my family wasn't happy unless someone was fighting with someone else. But um, uh, Now let me say one thing about this socially embedded process is that this is not determinative of who you are. It's not determinative. These things that have affected you are not in hard cement, forever unchangeable. They're not determinative. However, these past relational experiences significantly impact your trajectory. Now, that heart, which is physically embodied and socially embedded, is also spiritually embattled. Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and cosmic forces. Or consider this beautifully profound verse that is meant to be read in very, very slow motion. For the desires of the flesh, your instinctive, natural, human desires, they're against the Holy Spirit. So when you're converted and Jesus comes to live inside of you, you have the Holy Spirit. Something new begins that was never there before. Yes, you had a conscience before. Yes, you felt guilty. But now suddenly you have been invaded by an extraterrestrial being who sets himself against your natural tendencies so that you cannot do the things that you want to do. Come to Jesus and begin to experience a lifelong, horrific, relentless Battle. Welcome to Jesus. So this is the reality that's going on all around us. And this, by the way, is where biblical counseling leaves psychology and psychiatry and therapy in the dust. Now, let me be super clear about this. Those disciplines are helpful disciplines. They can tell us a lot about ourselves. Uh, We're not xing them off the page at all. Um, They're helpful, but they are significantly limited because they don't take into consideration the spiritually embattled reality, which is true for every person, not just for for, uh, believers. We live in a world of cosmic forces. The longer you walk with Jesus, you begin to develop a hypersensitivity not only to the Holy Spirit, but to demons, and to the devil, and to their schemes. And you begin to realize they're far more real, far more thick, far more present, far more tinkering than you could ever imagine. And if you miss that, if you miss this layer, this idea that there are spiritual forces in our lives that go beyond nature and nurture, it's like changing the oil in your car. You know, you take out the old oil, Uh, You take off the oil filter, you put on a new filter, you put that plug back in the oil pan, and off you go down the road. Oops, I forgot to put new oil in. You'll ride for a little while, and then suddenly you'll smell smoke, and by then it's too late. And that's what happens if we miss this circle altogether. Uh, these cosmic battles that are playing out in our fallen world system, and then this inability that we have to consistently and perfectly obey. By the way, I would recommend if you want to, one of the most brilliant, easy-to-read, simple explanations that will heighten your uh, detection of demonic forces in your life, the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, this is his 60th he died on November 26, 1963, so this will be his 60th anniversary of his death. So, read Screwtape's letters between now and November twenty second. Um, but let me give you one example of this. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus comes down off the mountain of transfiguration with the disciples. They've had this phenomenal experience. They come down, and there they meet a, uh, some of his disciples that he left behind. And they're dealing with a father whose son has n- never been able to speak and who has these seizures. Now, oftentimes that has been falsely labeled um, epilepsy. It's not an epileptic that Jesus heals when he comes down off the mountain, even though the symptoms look similar to epileptic seizures. Uh, But we're told by Jesus that the problem with this boy is that he is demon-possessed. And we might laugh at that and think, yeah, well, that was before they had modern medicine, and that's what they called it then. That's what we call it still today in many cases. And we miss this picture of the human being if we don't take this into consideration. And interestingly, Jesus said, the problem that this boy is having can only be driven out by prayer. There are just some things that, believe it or not, prayer is the only prescription that's going to work on those things. Again, people are complicated and all these things that happen to us our heart our body our past the spiritual battle that we're in all of this is surrounded by the providence of God we are providentially ruled each one of us are providentially ruled in different ways so our hearts are different our bodies are different our past situations are different the way we do spiritual battle and the and the amount of it is different but it, but Romans 8:28 tells us that God is working all things together for good in his life to those who love him. Ephesians chapter 1 says that all of the world is following the will of God, trying to sum up everything in Jesus Christ, as it goes on to say in Ephesians 1. In other words, behind all that's happening in our life, there's, there's movement. Everything is all of human history. All of our individual lives are moving toward a goal that God has for humanity But here's where we have to step back and think. My providential scenario is different than other people's. I'm a white, middle class American born in the 1900s. I'm not an Afghani woman born in the 1400s. A whole different set of providential circumstances affect that woman than affect, affect me. And even in the same family, some people can bounce along with with few bumps, and in the same family, someone else can have endless series of problems happen to him over and over again. Some days I ride to work and I hit all the green lights, and some days I swear someone's sitting on the side going, "Here he comes." Uh, And so imagine a life where you're always hitting the red lights, and the person next to your coworker is always getting the green lights. You have no control over that. No control over that at all. That's God's providence. He's doing what he does. Consider the parable of the sower. Jesus says, some seed falls on the good soil and it produces fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. I'm inclined to think, I don't want to read too much into that parable. I'm inclined to think that you can't control whether you produce 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. That's the providence of God. What matters is that you produce. Unfortunately, in our world, it matters how much you produce versus me. I don't care if I produce 100-fold. I just want to produce more than all you guys. It's called pride, by the way. But so, where am I going with all this? Well, two things, really. I just, First of all, I hope this will begin to help you understand yourself. Proverbs 20 says, the purpose of a man's heart is like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws it out. Now, Proverbs 20 is one of those verses that's set in the context of some verses before and after it. So that's why I need to say this. I don't want to get too deep here for just a moment, but um, Bruce Walkie, who's probably the world-class expert on the book of Proverbs makes an interesting statement about this verse. He says, this metaphor represents the competent person's ability to draw up skillfully to the surface the connivers, which is what the context is there. You see, Proverbs 20 is speaking about someone who pretends to be something on the outside, but they really have uh, motives underneath that you can't see. But a man of understanding can actually competently draw that conceiver's unfathomable counsel from beneath to the from beneath it to, to the surface. Now, this is used in a negative way. I want you to think of this in a positive way. This is what biblical counselors do. This is what biblical counselors do. They have a competency, they have an ability to draw up to the surface what's really going on in the human heart beyond the exterior, which is fooling us. Maybe the way I'd like to say it is, biblical counselors show us our true self that is hidden from ourselves. They show us our true selves, which are hidden from ourselves, and they show us how the gospel can remake us, but the gospel cannot Remake you until you realize where you're broken, until you realize your true self. Those who've spent time with Kathy, our other biblical counselors, have experienced the very thing I'm I'm talking about. Those of you who've been to some of our classes that we've offered or seen some of our resources, you've experienced this. You've discovered things about yourself. You've seen yourself more holistically. Yes, you are complicated, but you can be understood, and therefore, change can happen, which is one of the reasons why I, I hate, and I must say, I've, for too long, uh, I was part of this category, that there's this general idea that counseling is for people that have really, really serious problems, to which I want to say, no. No. Counseling is for people who are tired of superficial solutions that aren't working and want deeper discipleship. It's for people who want surgery for an area where they're spiritually stuck. It's for people who've lost the carbonation in their walks with Jesus or maybe have never had it. It's for people who want and need a affirming dose of reality because they've yet again like I have too frequently fallen for the idea that somehow I can find paradise here if I keep chasing it. People who get caught up in building their own kingdom that's who counseling is for and that's why I would say every Christian sooner or later needs one or two sessions of serious biblical counseling or one or two seasons of serious biblical counseling. Something far more helpful than the necessary preventative medicine of normal small group discipleship. I'm not discounting small group discipleship. That's preventative medicine. We need that a lot more. But we also need this surgical process as well. So understanding yourself. And then I would say relating to others is the other thing I want you to see here. Again, think of that person, remember at the beginning, whatever that person was, I encourage you to have in mind. James chapter 3 describes the contrast between the wisdom from above versus the wisdom from below. And so when it says if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, then don't boast. In other words, don't be confident about your analysis of someone else. That's my reading into this. So if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, which by the way you probably don't even know you have it in your heart, Don't be so confident that you know and understand the other person. You're really being false to the truth. And then he goes on to describe that the wisdom that comes down from above. And then he goes on to describe what it is. So take something, for example, and this is where I think our oversimplified formulas that work for us don't always work for others. But take something that is as common as depression. Is depression a result of personal sin? Is depression personal sin and something else? Or is depression caused by something that isn't personal sin and something else? And of course the answer is yes. It's complicated. So don't rush to a conclusion of what you think depression is. That's why I appreciate Paul Tripp's book uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. He even if you don't remember the book, you'll never forget these headers. Love, know, speak, do. When you're dealing with someone, what's the first thing we're instinctively, what, what do we instinctively do? We speak. Oh, here, I've, I, I, tell me your problems. Don't go more than three paragraphs. I got it. And then we speak. Uh, or then we tell them to do something. It starts with, Do you even love the person? Are you even willing to love the person? All right, if you are, then take a long time to know the person before you speak and tell them what to do. It's a beautiful formula. It's called compassion, by the way, uh, when you get in the skin of someone else. So biblical counseling is really about how we change. It's how God shows us our true selves, hidden from ourselves, and how the gospel is in the process of rebaking us. And uh, I want to just, as we come to the table here and think about this, I think there's a very helpful application for all this. But I'm going to pause for a moment, let the worship team come forward, and also the guys serving the bread and cup this morning. This table is open to everyone who calls Jesus their Savior and their King. So I invite you to come this morning down the center aisle, and then in just a moment I'll lead us all in taking communion together. But this table is a reminder of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and how it reverses The brokenness in us, and by the way, brokenness is bigger than personal sin. This is how Jesus reverses the brokenness in creation and in creatures. In fact, every day we are told through multiple channels that being happy, experiencing peace, having worth comes from what you do and what you have. And our Father is constantly getting down on our level, taking our face in in his hands, and he's gently turning us back and reminding us that you are not what you do, and you are not what you have. You are what I declare you to be, and what you are becoming. And nothing else really matters at the end of the day. God's all about changing you, not changing your life. He's all about surfacing idols to destroy them so that you can thrive like he meant you to be from creation. And so when we come to this table today, this table is a place of love. But what I love about the Bible, (laughs) what I love about love in the Bible, is that love is not, hey, you be you. That's what Christianity is all about. You be you. You know what this table is all about? Something is horribly wrong with us. And Jesus lived, died, and resurrected to fix that and to give us hope that he can change that. And so I thought it would be appropriate today to let the last words without commentary come from someone that the church lost last Friday. His name was Tim Keller, and many of you have heard of his name. He was a pastor in New York City, but he was much more than that. Tim Keller was a prophet to the whole church, and Tim Keller was a historically rare prophet in that he was a gentle prophet. He was John Newton and C.S. Lewis combined in a way no one else has ever been. And Keller reminds us so vividly in just a few quotes here of why we have this table and why God is so committed to changing us. So without comment, the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This, by the way, leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. And finally, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need and what we have more than anything. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we are continually amazed, not that you love us so much, it's how you love us that is so brilliant and holistic and all-encompassing and so costly and yet so freely given to us. So overwhelm us yet again with this determined, life-changing life changing Love that endlessly and and without exhaustion flows